The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News. Have you considered doing the thing that scares you the most? Hey everyone, from LinkedIn News, this is In the Arena, a podcast exploring human potential. I'm Leah Smart, and every week you'll find me right here in conversation with bright minds and brave hearts, learning how we can improve our lives and our world by transforming ourselves. So stories of scandal and drama make headlines all the time. They're everywhere, right? And for better, we might hear stories that stir our emotions, But for worse, we get drawn to and pulled into stories where something has gone wrong, where we can blame someone, where we have a protagonist and an antagonist. Oftentimes when there's a person who's at the center of a headline, they end up getting painted in a good light or a bad one. And then we can close the book, right? They've been categorized. But I'm curious if you really believe that people are all good or all bad. And today I'm talking to someone who is sharing her story that's forcing me and I think all of us to rethink this concept if we're willing to deal with a little more complexity. Huma Abedin is Hillary Rodham Clinton's right-hand woman, and you'll hear us talk about her as HRC in our convo. She's made headlines in her work with HRC, her relationship and marriage to former Congressman Anthony Weiner, and more recently with her book called Both And. It's a story of, well how most of us do live between multiple worlds. We have complex histories. We've done things that would be considered both good and bad. We are not dualistic or simple. We are simply human. Also, before we get started, I just want to give a quick content warning. In this interview, we briefly mentioned suicide. So if you need to tap out, here's your moment. If you or a loved one are in need of help, you can always call or text the Lifeline Network of Crisis Centers at 988 And with that, here's my conversation with Huma, beginning with one of my favorite questions. What's the intention behind your work? Well, my intention is, you know, I opened the book with a letter I found in my father's years after he passed away. And this notion of, you know, I've certainly had a privileged life. I've certainly had some challenges in my life. And, um, And I think that letter that I found by accident ended up really being my intention, which is, you know, essentially it was a, it was a, a, a diary page my father had written and sort of stored in this file. And it basically said, you know, as Truman said, if you can't stand the heat, then get out of the kitchen. But um, ultimately, it doesn't matter what anyone else says. You are responsible for your own actions, your own principles and values, and ultimately to God, to the higher power. And so to me, it really was um, about whether there could be a service in this book. And if there's one person who read it and maybe was entertained or found that it helped them or helped them get out of bed, that really was my intention was to try to be of service and in service, uh, because I think that's really what's motivated me um, my entire adult life. And I mean, you've, you've had so many conversations about the book. I'm sure some were expected, right? Uh, Obvious, the the things that you shared. But what was unexpected for you that's come up? The thing that's been most unexpected is how many people who I think, because look, the title of the book, 
And it's uh, it's funny, early on the book tour, I remember I was sitting with a, uh, somebody who was interviewing me. And she's like, I don't get the title. I just don't understand. What does both and mean? <laughs> but ultimately, the you know, to the question of purpose, it is that I was raised in this very, I believe, unusual way. You know, my parents really were very curious about the world. Very, you know, I was raised in a conservative Muslim family, Indian father, Pakistani mother. But this feeling of knowing who you are. And I, I talk to so many adults. I have so many friends, male and female, who constantly say they're still trying to search for who they are yes. and where they came from and what. You know, some people don't even know their origin story. Um, and I think that was a gift that I was given from very early on. I knew who I was. I knew my place in the world and that it was I could do anything that I wanted. It was just you are loved, you are cherished, you are smart, you can do anything and be anything. But we expect a certain code of conduct. We expect discipline. We expect moderation. And that you can be a both and. And ultimately, at the end of the day, particularly as women and women of color, that there are uh, at least I feel this way when I speak to other women of color, that there's something, whether mm -hmm. it's I also had an ill father, whether it was also I was born in the Midwest, whether it was also I wanted to be a journalist and, you know, ended up following a different path. All of these things have kind of surprised me at how much the connections are. I was stopped at the airport the other day and this young man was clearly struggling with something. Mm -hmm you know, stopped me and said, your book has helped me too. This is not just, you know, and I said something like, I'm so happy to, you know, when you stopped me, I said so many young women. He says, it's not just for young women. It's just young people who are still trying to figure out if they're going to be successful in their life, if they can get out of bed every day. Um, and the fact that you can do it is, uh, you know, something that gives me a source of strength. So that's, the, it's that making the connections. Making the connections. I mean, I, when I got your book, I was initially thinking, I'm not sure how I'm going to connect to you. Like, I didn't know what the points were. And then as I listened to the book, I loved getting a chance to understand your story because, number one, I am an insatiably curious person. I was so inspired by your parents. Um, so, and it re your dad reminds me a lot of my own dad um, and my own experiences of, you know, um, my dad is still alive, but he's, and he's been someone who's been so uh, core to the decisions I've made in my life, to um, who I want to be. Mm. Um and we're very similar human beings, I think, at our core. But there were so many points that I was like, oh, yeah, I get it. Um, and one of them was just listening to your evolution over time made me think about what it means for women and women of color mm. to step into their light. And I heard, you know, it was like I was listening to you as someone who is coming up as supporting other people and so much of what you've done. Um, and I felt like this book was your opportunity and your decision and your courage to step into your own light and share yourself. And there was so much in there that I felt actually was entirely relatable, which is what I love about empathy, right? It's like, I don't have to be you to understand you mm. or to see you and say, oh, me too. When you think about um, connecting with other people, when you think about what you're trying to share, has anything come up for you that has become clear now that you have this platform that you're able to, to share and kind of get out to the world? For me, a big revelation um, has been, you know, education was the most important thing in our family. Yes. 
you can do anything. My father always believed uh, that I would be a writer when I grew up. And I share this one of my favorite stories in the book about him giving me Silas Marner when I was 10, my son's age. I can't even imagine him reading Silas Marner. But, you know, my not understanding the material, but asking him, you know, why this was, you know, why Marianne Evans used a man's name, George mm-hmm. Eliot, to write the book. And he'd said, well, you know, in the Victorian era, women weren't taken seriously as writers. And so she had to use a man's name. But don't worry, when you grow up, you'll, you know, you'll write your own story, you'll use your own name, and everyone will take it seriously. But what does it say about our society that when I did come to the time when I had to write the book, that even I didn't believe that I was good enough to write it. Mm-hmm. And it actually took a man telling me, I mean, when we, when I sat down and, and signed this book contract and said, I'm going to tell my story and write my memoir. And I had to, by the way, be convinced the story was good. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the things I share a lot as I travel around the country and the world. I tell everybody, and particularly young women, share your, write your story. Everyone's story is special and unique and true. And yes, people will relate to it, but it is so important to own that story and to share that story because that's how you become, you have to be the architect of your own life, Mm -hmm. but you don't know that. And so I subconsciously, even with all of that grounding, had those insecurities, had those, you know, was I good enough? Was I smart enough? Was I, you know, uh, pretty enough? And so when I wrote uh, sat down to write the book proposal, we assumed we were going to get a ghostwriter. And by the way, Leah, everyone assumed I was going to get a ghostwriter. And it was only when I sat at a, you know, at a lunch with somebody, a man who questioned whether there was even value to writing the book. Why would you tell the story? You know, people have heard enough about all this scandal. It was when somebody told me I couldn't. Mm. That's actually what riled me up. That's what gave me the confidence in myself. And, you know, I write a story in the book at the State Department where I had this very senior job. Here I am, the deputy chief of staff at the secretary of state. I'm deciding who sits in these meetings, and I don't think I'm good enough or senior enough to be in those meetings. And Cheryl Mills, our African-American chief of staff, who is a legend Mm -hmm. in Hillary land, said, no, you have a seat at the table and you need to occupy that seat at the table. And so to me, what I would have said to you is like, I'm confident and I know all of these things. You know, I'm good at this. I'm really good at my job. I could do my job with my eyes closed. And I am. I am all of those things. Mm -hmm. But even somebody who has that solid grounding, and I do think this is a societal thing, it's not conscious. It is Mm -hmm you know, how we're raised. And for me, I grew up in the Middle East. I mean, I write in the book about being a 16-year-old and going to weddings of my girlfriends in Saudi because that was the cultural norm. You graduated from high school at 15 or 16 and you either went to finishing school in Switzerland Mm -hmm. or you went to like the local college for, you know, some classes or you got married. Mm -hmm. And I had my fork in the road moment. You and I talked about this Mm -hmm. before we walked in here. I I had a thing when I was, I just knew my life was going to be different. I didn't know how. I lived in this very constricted social environment. I would be envious of our pet cat, Tiger, because Tiger was a female cat who could just wander the streets of Saudi Arabia and say, I can't even imagine what that was like. But I still knew that my life was going to be big and special and different. And it was. But I I had to choose that fork in the road. For me, that fork in the road was 27 years ago now, being at a family wedding and getting a call from a colleague at the White House saying, do you want to go on this trip for the First Lady? And here I am in front of me. This is one option for my life, a storybook wedding, a family, children, or taking that call or something else, getting in that yellow taxi cab, leaving that hotel and getting on that plane. I had no idea Mm -hmm. where that road was going to lead me. All I knew is I wanted it. And I took it. And I'm, boy, am I glad I did. I'm getting riled up just listening to you because I'm (laughs) thinking about that. I know the experience so well. And um, 
I was framing it as as feeling like you're in the wrong movie, but mm. I can remember, you know, I I kind of envied your childhood in some ways because even this little moment that you mentioned where your dad would have you essentially do certain things like yes. go talk to guests in the living yes. room even though you're so scared or, you know, call to book flight arrangements, etc. Those moments sound so small, but I think they are pivotal in helping children build a sense of self-reliance and confidence. And it's something that, like, I, I won't say I didn't have, but I think maybe wasn't as purposeful when I was young. So my experience of getting older was actually, you know, realizing over time how many times mm. I'd squeezed myself into these really small spaces. And an example I think of was I used to run track as a, as a teenager in high school. And my parents would come to the meets, as, you know, most parents would. And my mom would always say, you know, we watch you race. And you start running, and you're so strong, and you're tall, and you have all the right physique and build. But we see that you're running with your friends, and we watch you slow down. And we watch you slow down. We don't even know if you're aware of it, but you slow down to be with them instead of going ahead and being yourself. And something I uncovered in therapy a few years ago and went, oh, my God, this is kind of like the metaphor for a lot of my early life until I was 27 and went, I'm in the wrong movie. And the question is kind of what you said. Am I willing to accept what I can see ahead of me, that runway that's very obvious and clear? I know the promotion path. I know the career path. Or am I willing to pull the plug on the whole thing and say, I don't know what the hell's coming, but it's the right movie? Oh my, so be- I have goosebumps listening to that I know, story. I'm like, I'm that is not to cry. so beautiful <laughs> and so relatable yeah. in so many ways that you were excellent at something, but you almost unconsciously, subconsciously, d- almost diminished yourself mm-hmm. um, for whatever reason. And the way you talk about your father too, you know, for me, and this is something I, I do think people have related to in the book. A lot of us grew up with parents. I happen to have a father who is essentially terminally ill. Mm-hmm. And so for him, a lot of these exercises, exactly what you said, this notion of self-reliance is, number one, here he was going to leave a widow with four children mm-hmm. under the age of 10. So number one, it was teaching us how to live without him. Mm-hmm. But secondly, it was a, a way for us to spend time together. It was like, come, let's call the travel agent together. Let's plan these amazing trips. That You know, a five or six-year-old is running around. You know, we are all living in our own worlds. I have a 10-year-old boy. Do I know how self, you know, (laughs) selfish, self-centered they are? That's just how they are as children. But my father really lived, I mean, he lived carpe diem. It was seize the day. You do not know. And I try to do that every single day, Leah, is Mm -hmm. on days that I'm feeling, you know, particularly not great. I, I, I always imagine, and maybe this is a little bit morbid, I almost remind myself, imagine... If today was your last day, if this is it, if this is it, if you knew this was your last day, how would you approach the world mentally and physically? And for me, there's always that shift. And you and I have Mm. talked about this. And I I 100 percent credit my parents um, for that. Um, But having said that, did I hold myself back? Did I, you know, have self-doubt and insecurities? I did for a long time. And I had the benefit of having a job I really loved. Mm-hmm. You know, when the Clintons left the White House, I'd made a promise to myself. I said, the day I got up and didn't want to go to work is the day I would give my notice. And it is such a uniquely extraordinary place, uh, environment, as I call it, Hillary Land, to mm-hmm. be part of. There was always something new and challenging happening. But you do have to continue pushing yourself. And so that is what I have spent the better part of the year telling young people in particular, 
consider doing the thing that scares you the most Mm -hmm. because it's often worth it and certainly was for me. I did the thing that scared me the most. You know, I woke up one day, I'm in my early 40s. You know, I have a husband who's been, you know, sent away dealing with all kinds of mental health uh, challenges and difficulties. And realizing that I was scared to do so many things. I was scared to write. I was scared to speak. I was scared to tell my story. And then it turned out I'm actually, wow, like these are things that you can do and you can maybe even do well. I was going to say, and you're good at it. I mean, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. And I feel it. And I feel so... You know, I, when I sat down to write the book proposal, uh, after I'd been convinced to write the book, and I have these two amazing agents, Dave and Kate, and they said, write, write the proposal. I said, all right. So I sit down and I basically just kind of seethe onto paper. I had so much anger, so much resentment. It was shortly after Hillary had lost the 2016 election. It was shortly after Anthony had gone away. I'm a single parent. I don't know what I'm going to do for work. I, you know, just feel terrible about myself. And I sit down and I write this story. I title it The Cliff. Yes. Do you remember this? Yeah, I and this I down. write this. And I all I write is how I feel standing at the cliff and what it's going to feel like on the way down and how much it's going to hurt and bracing and what hitting rock bottom would feel like. And I give it to my agents and they're like, Huma, just tell us the story. <laughs> the story. We understand all the feelings and boy, are they raw. Yeah. But tell us the story. And now I, the last couple of weeks, all I've been, you know, kind of just beaming about is if that girl, and now you've read the book, so mm-hmm. you know I had my subway moment. You know I had that moment where I thought, I cannot do this anymore. Yeah. It is too hard. I can't, and I'm, I'm ashamed even sometimes that I talk about it because, you know, in Islam, and I am Muslim, mm-hmm. you're not allowed to consider that. Mm-hmm. You know, all, it is only God decides when it's your last day. So to me, as a practicing Muslim, that I even had that thought, you know, that, that, that was shame that I, I even had to write it, but I wrote everything. Yes. So it is in there. If the girl on that woman who stood on that subway platform in 2019 and all she thought about in her leopard flats was to take a step because the pain would be over. If she could talk to me today, she wouldn't believe it. Yeah. That it could be so good, that life could be so good and so whole and complete and filled with joy and possibility and potential. And to be a 47-year-old woman and be able to say that sitting with you, it's something extraordinary. And I feel it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel so much. And uh, and I'm just, I'm proud to share. Um, and I think both you and I are the same in that we want our dads to be proud of us. Yes. I think they are. Yeah. I know they are. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> whether they can say it or not, whether we absolutely know it or not. Yeah. I, yeah. Um, you know, I... Uh, I'm really glad that you brought that up. And the the thing that you stirred in me is I live in New York City, too. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, when I was in my early 20s, there was a friend of mine who committed suicide. Mm. And I didn't know how to handle that. Mm. Um, it was so strange and painful and confusing. And it haunted me until about two years ago. So I had had moments where I was also at the subway and going, is this something that happens to people? Is this real and why? And what if I ever did that? And I think in our country and in our world, we don't talk enough about this. And I think it's the shame that puts people so much further into their own holes versus 
just the truth of looking at it. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, a big part of the reason I do what I do is because I got to a point where my anxiety was so bad that I didn't know how it was going to get through. And that was at 29. I'm 34. And I was like, I, I don't know. I can't even see a world where it's better. And like you said, at 34, I'm like, at 33, I felt that way. At 32, I felt that way. But it took me believing it could get better. And as someone who, you know, I was raised Christian, you were raised Muslim, like, I truly, I am so uh, curious about spiritual paths and religions. Um, and a big part of it is because it's what saved me. Mm. Was was not the not the things that can sometimes make us feel like we do or don't belong in certain places, or uh, you know make us feel that there's a level of control that's being put on us, but the essence of of spirituality, the essence of finding meaning, the essence of finding purpose, the essence of connection to self, to others, to something bigger, is is in large part what helped me understand that there was something bigger and that I was going to be okay. And so I know you, a lot of people ask you, how did you know you were going to be okay? <laughs> like, how did you know? <laughs> and and the truth is I didn't. And I yeah. can relate so much to what you just said every step of the way because, you know, ultimately, you know, I think there are so many hidden meanings in that letter that I found. When my father wrote that letter, he said, ultimately, you know, you're responsible to yourself, your own principles and values. And ultimately, he didn't write Allah. He mm -hmm. wrote Jehovah. Yahweh, as a practicing conservative Muslim, point being, whatever your higher power is, there is, and, and, and maybe you don't have a higher mm -hmm. power. Maybe it's just a, you know, sort of a spiritual guide. Maybe you don't need it and more power to you. Because ultimately, what is prayer? Whether it's Christian prayer or Jewish prayer or Hindu prayer, or, it is a moment of meditation, of self-reflection. I can only speak for Islamic prayer in that for, for us, it's a, it's a singular conversation. It's between you and God. And it forces you to t step back from anything you're dealing with in this world and just reflect on your thoughts, deeds, actions, and intentions. And it always it has always centered me. Mm -hmm. And people say to me, you know, I've had people early on in, uh, in the last couple of weeks when I did the paperback interview, I said to somebody, and, and, this, and one of my friends who read the book, she was like, Huma. I mean, did you really have a subway moment? I mean, really? <laughs> like, you seem so, like, too practical and too grounded. Mm. And I said to her, and I'm, I'm going to repeat this, and I don't, I don't want to embarrass her. I said, I wrote that because, number one, for me, it was the light bulb moment. Mm -hmm. It was the moment I realized I needed professional help. I grew up in a society and a culture where you did not talk to strangers about your problems. In the Middle East, no, no. Talk to a stranger about our personal family How problems. How could you? Yep. Completely undone. And so... You know, even if it was for five seconds that I needed a way out and a way out was something that bad, it was the it was my wake up call and I needed it. And um, and that's and that's why in the end I chose to write it. I didn't you know, I didn't need to write it. I mean, I think people who know anything about my life are like, OK, it's been it, you've had some pretty you know hard things that you've had to deal with. But you sometimes you need to know you had a limit, and that was my limit. Mm -hmm. And I kind of came through. And so when I when I see young people, and they say to me, "How did you know?" I didn't know. I you know, even now it's sort of I still get up some days and they're not perfect. But I believe that there is hope and possibility and beauty and love and just you know this sense of I have I have a sense of peace now with myself and my place in the world um, that I didn't. I didn't have before. And there's something so powerful about that. And so 
I really do want to, you know, try and share that. And what is your yeah. solution and where are you going to end up? I don't know. But just believe it'll be better. It can be better. I think more people than not uh, ask themselves if it's going to be okay. Yes. And I think the conversation... I think it's not true to believe that most people aren't asking that or that if you are, you're not stable. That's right. I think the challenge is that um, as human beings, we have a very difficult time holding the complexity of human nature and the yeah. human experience. Yeah. And so we don't so we don't know how to look at Huma and say she's all these things. She's both and, right? Like she's questioning and she's stable. Right. She's having a hard time. and so the that's, questioning and she's stable. Yeah. Like it's well, when yeah. I read your title, it reminded me of being a coach because oh. in coaching a lot of times— you, uh, you know, you, I sit with leaders and executives and all sorts of people, and you hear a lot of either or. Um, and so yes. a lot of the either or is the duality and the inability to hold complexity. So it's either I'm okay or I'm not. I'm I'm one or the other instead of, no, both and. Like is normally what I end up saying. I'm like, you can be both of those things and it's still okay. Yeah. yeah. And it's still going to be okay, right? But yeah. you may not know what that looks like. And it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. Right, right. And it seems to be at risk, certainly in this country. We're going on a short break. When we get back, more about the book. And I had to ask about Huma's relationship with her mentor, Hillary Clinton. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back with Huma Abedin, author of the incredible memoir, Both And. One thing I loved about this book, aside from Huma's awesome narration in the audiobook, was the way she tied together all the threads of her story. Her parents, her work her partnership. It all came to a head for me, though, in a moment when she's deciding about a marriage proposal. When I listened to the part about your mom before you got married, 
being concerned and talking to Hillary and saying, I don't know if this is the right decision for her. It reminded me of this this idea or this way that I, I think has been really meaningful for me to live, which comes back to when I think about meaning, purpose, and our lives kind of all being for our greatest lesson and our highest, uh, our highest becoming, whatever that is, um, that there is no wrong choice. And so I sort of, it was interesting to go through this process with you and as difficult as things got and with your subway moment, also in my mind going, everything is probably exactly as it should be. We just don't know what should be means. Can you talk a little bit about that? You just used a magic word, though, and that was choice. Mm -hmm. And that is something a woman with my background, the way I was raised from my religion and my culture a lot of women don't have the luxury yes. of that word, mm -hmm. choice. I was given that. You know, mm -hmm. I've spent the last week and I feel very privileged to have been given a microphone to be able to talk about what's happening in Iran and that the women and citizens of Iran do not have that very basic thing, which is choice. Yes. And that is something my parents always from day one, you know, I have women in my family who cover their hair and mm -hmm. are dressed much more conservatively um, than I do. And that was a choice. And mm -hmm. I was allowed... Um, you know, to make whatever choice. And I, you know, because you mentioned my mother, uh, I, the book, I end the book with my, my great grandmother, because I have often in the last year thought about her, this eight-year-old girl, like, what is it about women's intuition? What is it that in your gut? This eight-year-old girl woke up one day in 1910 India, where girls did not go to school and tell her parents, I want to be educated, mm -hmm. that she thought being educated, she just knew was going to change her life. And then I think about what she did with my grandmother and my mother and then the life that I've had, this extraordinary, extraordinary life, and I can't underscore that enough uh, that I've had. And so to land in the United States in 1996, and look, some of my friends went nuts. Some of my friends who grew up in Saudi Arabia, they come to the United States to school, and they're like, they're just doing and trying everything. But I had this sense of, you know, like I never, you know, I didn't drink. I didn't, you know, go out clubbing. It was kind of, I was always more curious about kind of the theater and culture and, and, and certainly politics. It just, you know, wasn't the thing that excited me. But the notion of choice, the notion of, and, um, you know, the entire time, and I say, I share this with you because you said you listened to the book. People asked what was the hardest part to read in the book, and I loved it, loved every part of it. Mm -hmm. uh, and people are always surprised, I guess, even particularly women who've had challenging relationships with men in their life are so surprised that I can write about my experience with Anthony with such kind of feeling of um, therapy. It's in a therapeutic way and with joy, and in part because. I also recognize something very special about my life. I can't relate to a lot of women because I actually did take aside Anthony's addiction mm -hmm. and his behavior that was completely inappropriate and wrong and just sort of disloyal in so many ways. And by the way, cost him everything. Mm -hmm. Everything. He lost everything. Mm -hmm. um, we lost everything. Uh, our names, our jobs, everything. You know, reputations, all those things. But, I mean, he was an excellent partner. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was the husband who woke up almost every day and would take the baby out of the crib so I could sleep in an extra hour. He would tell me I was beautiful or brilliant all, all the time. Like, all the things a woman would want in their partner. I had that. Yes. And I got to tell you, Leah, it was one of the reasons, and, I, you know, I haven't really had an opportunity to really talk about this because you approach this situation as, oh, my God, this was, you know, a bad marriage and a bad husband. He, I, and I write it in the book. And I appreciate your saying about the journey because I did try to do that. And so that 
decision about getting married to him, I was conflicted. You know, he wasn't Muslim. He was Jewish. I was raised to believe I would always marry, uh, you know, a Muslim man. And I ultimately wanted my father's approval. So Mm -hmm. the only time in the book I couldn't, they had to stop. I couldn't record it. As I share the story of being so conflicted about marrying Anthony because I didn't know if my father would approve. And I go to London to visit my older sister. And I said, we were raised to be independent and strong and to make whichever decisions were right for us, to be self-reliant. And here I am making this biggest decision in my life, and I am not sure I can do it without him. And I I couldn't read it in the book. I mean, I finally made it through. But these are the moments when you realize that you know, there are certain things that are always going to be tender and always maybe there's some part of me that's always going to think, you know, her daddy left her and, you mm. know, am I going to ever recover? And that's why this book is a love letter to mm-hmm. him. This is my last conversation with my dad. That's what this book is. It's all all these other things for other people. For me, this is I have one more conversation with my father and say, this is what I've done. Yeah. And are you proud of me? That was what I felt was like I, I looked at your mom and I was like, wow, she's an incredible. They're both incredible yes. beings. But yes. I could feel the connection to your father because I also have that connection. And I was like, oh, I get it. It's something very meaningful. That's yeah. beautiful. Yeah. yeah. It really is. Yeah. Um, so there's two questions I have. One, you probably get asked all the time. What's it like to have Hillary Clinton be in your life? <laughs> I have been with Hillary Clinton for so long. I cannot even remember not having her in my life because it's 26 years um, she's been in my life. And so for me, first and foremost, because you asked the question, it's having a friend, having that. She is very often the first person I call to get advice, guidance. What do you think I should do about X or Y or Z? And she always gives me solid advice. And she always tells me the hard truth. You know, when when you're you're in a room and somebody's like, no one's talking about the elephant in the room, she will ask. Mm -hmm. I mean, she will ask, what are you planning to do? What are you going to do about this? Like, Mm -hmm. this is a problem. She doesn't have that filter of I'm not going to, you know, address something because it's a difficult conversation. She wants to have the difficult conversations, but at the end of the day, she has this ability to see something in you. Like, mm-hmm. you are a good writer. Mm-hmm. You should write more. You are a good, you know, public speaker. You should speak more. And all the things about this book and my speaking out, she told me I could do. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I owe her. I owe her that. I'm never going to be able to repay her the rest of my life for, you know, the gift of friendship and uh, advice and mentorship she has. She has yeah. been a mentor to me. Oh, I love that. You know— I get up every single day. I'm not going to presume I know anything about your uh, your political leanings. I do get up every single day and think, what a loss for this country in history that she never was our commander in chief in 2016. I think we have an excellent president right now. But because that is how unbelievable she is as a human being, as mm-hmm. a leader, because she has the what my parents had and how I was raised. She has radical empathy. That she is not somebody who, by the way, could right now be sitting on a beach and just, you know, eating, you know, French fries and ice cream and just say, look, I gave my life to this country. But she is so committed to this notion of public service, so committed to how can I help that um, that is really singular. I mean, I, uh, you know, I share in the book that um, I would have conversations on the campaigns with people saying, oh, well, she's not charismatic like her husband Mm -hmm. is or how President Obama is. But she does have something, I believe, that is a once in a generation leader has, which she has all the right characteristics to be 
the right kind of president, mm-hmm. the right kind of, you know, she's she's brilliant. She's a policy wonk. She's got that empathy. She's got creative ideas. She's willing to try scary things. And that explains why whenever she was in office, when she became, you know, senator, when she became secretary of state, she was really kind of put on this pedestal and really admired. And the minute she turned into a woman who was ambitious, because ambition is still perceived as a bad word in this country. And that's when it was time to take her down. Well, and you exposed a part of her that I I think probably a lot of us weren't Mm. aware of. And the way that you talk about her and the way that she relates to you, uh, she felt like someone that you would you could trust on end. Yes. Like she's a vault. Yeah. She she knows. Yes, she's a vault. And trust to look out for your best interest. And and also be practical and also know how to lean into emotion. But it's it's like she felt like a pillar to me. Um as you're describing her. So so for you, this book is coming out in paperback. It's been out for a year. What now? Well, now I'm going to continue doing the thing (laughs) that scares me the most. I'm going to look forward to having more conversations um, with brilliant people like you who are really trying to take some complicated issues in the world and make them digestible and make them relatable. And I I hope to be part of that conversation. Yeah. And I want to just thank you because um, sharing your story isn't easy. It's just not easy. I mean, no matter what the story is, we all, you know, I, I love Brene Brown, and she always says we all have a story that could bring someone else to their knees. Yeah. Um, we all have some version of that story, and I think so many of us don't share it. We don't know how to share it. We don't even know how to look at it ourselves. And so, uh, you know, what I s- saw in you, heard in you, and have heard in you in your interviews is that um, – Yes, things were difficult. Yes, it's been tough. And you've also put yourself in a position to work through that experience so that you could come and be of service in this way, which you probably never expected. No. <laughs> you did not expect that this would be how you would be of service. But, um, you know, I, I've realized in uh, having this show and in doing the work I'm doing today Every time I sit down to write, I'm like, oh, my God, oh, my God, am I about to share, share whatever I'm about to share? Even in this conversation, right, am I am I really going to share that thing? But you literally never know whose life you're changing, who you're impacting. You know, like you said, people would come up to you on the, on the street yeah, and say, do. and I'm sure still do still even do. more now, and say, thank you because you expressed what I experienced, even if we're not exactly the same. You expressed what I experienced, and it helps people start the process of healing, which I think is honestly the underpinning for a lot of what can create more peace in our world. So thank you for your work. Well, thank you for what you so beautifully said. You should, we should uh, go on the road together. Yeah, well, yeah. This is a good— uh, <laughs> And can we go shopping? Get, and let's definitely go shopping. Are you kidding? My All right, Huma. <laughs> I'm going to have you complete these three statements. Yes. Uh, better humans are— People who value their own worth. Amen. Better work is? Work where you feel like you're giving to others. And a better world has. More boys raised not um, just to respect women, but not fear their power. Ooh, beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Oh my God, this is so much fun. That was the beautiful human Huma Abedin, political advisor, speaker, and author of the incredible memoir, Both And. One big thing before we go. I think we all benefit from exploring and sharing our stories. And by now, you know I talk about this a lot. I love how Huma says, share your story. 
And in doing so herself, she's created all these connections and relationships in totally unlikely places. But I don't think that we just share our stories so we can talk about them with other people. I think the real meaningful work is so that we can accept our stories for ourselves. As Audre Lorde so beautifully put, nothing I accept about myself can be used against me to diminish me. If this episode resonated with you, share it with someone else who values holding complexity in life and help other people like you find our show by leaving us a rating before you go. Even better, write a one-sentence review telling me about one of your mentors. And as always, you can find me on LinkedIn writing about human potential and meaningful living. In the Arena is a production of LinkedIn News. The show was produced by Michelle O'Brien. Special thanks to Victoria Taylor. Joe DeGiorgi mixed our show. Florencia Iriando is head of original audio and video. Dave Pond is head of news production. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. And I'm Leah Smart. Thanks for coming on the journey with me, and I will see you next week.